Hello, and welcome to the City Baptist Church Podcast, where our desire is to help others find meaning and mission in following Jesus. Today's message is from our brand new sermon series, Acts, Church on the Move. In this series, we follow the expansion of the early church. Even in the midst of persecution, we see the church experience tremendous growth through the power of God and staying faithfully committed to the Word and community. And I'd invite you to take your Bibles with me and go to the book of Acts. Acts chapter number 5 is where we'll be today. And we'll be actually walking our way all the way through to chapter number 6. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning. And so I hope that you'll stay with me. I'll kind of narrate a little bit about what was happening, and then we'll get to our main passage in Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7 here in just a few minutes. Um, But if you remember where we've been so far in our study, the early church was undergoing a massive transformation. If you'll remember that, just what we've seen in just a few chapters of this book, I mean, incredible things are happening where they have gone from a group of just small, a small group of believers to now a movement of thousands of empowered believers who are walking in the Spirit. They're seeing the power of God. God reflected through the apostles and as well they're walking in unity and generosity and just really an incredible care that they have one for another and as we saw uh, so far Satan of course had been paying attention to the whole situation he had noticed what was happening and he was doing his best to conquer and to corrupt what was happening uh, there in Jerusalem but when it comes up to just a straight up match of power Satan versus God God is going to win every single time and we saw that even last week despite the uh, really horrific results results of that internal attack that happened in the lives of Ananias and Sapphira and then ultimately within the church even though it was horrific to see what we notice is that the church came through that situation stronger and God showing his might through the apostles in even more of an incredible way uh, uh, to the people that were there so in Acts chapter 5 and verse 12 it says and by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people And so because of what had taken place, it says that great fear fell upon the people. And then it says that great signs and wonders were done through the apostles. Notice that. That's just a key thing uh, to keep in mind. But then down in verse number 14, over the course of the next few weeks, it says that, and believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women. And so multitudes, I don't know, how do you put a number on multitudes? You know, it maybe means something different for all of us, but regardless, a lot of people were being added. Both men and women were coming to the Lord and coming to him in faith. And not only were they coming in faith in great multitudes, but the signs and wonders that were taking place were the apostles literally doing miracles and healing people. Uh, the passage continues and tells us that people were so amazed at what was going on and God was revealing his power in such an incredible way that people were literally put putting their sick and putting their crippled family members in the street just for the hopes that Peter's shadow would cast over them and they might be healed. Now, it doesn't tell us that if his shadow could heal anybody. It doesn't say that. But that's what people really believe. They were seeing the manifest power of God revealed in these special sign gifts uh, through the apostles. But despite of what God was doing and despite, I mean, just really, I don't think there's any way to negate what was happening. Clearly, miracles were happening And many were turning from their uh, religious background to a freeing faith in Jesus Christ. But despite all of that, the religious leaders were still having a hard time with it. The religious leaders were uh, in fear of losing influence. And ultimately, of course, they were in fear of losing their power over the people. 
And so led by the high priest, the Sadducees rose up again. This time, rather than just taking one or two of the apostles, they arrested all of them. They're like, let's just get them all, round them up. They got all the apostles and they threw them into prison. And what happened is just really incredible because while the apostles were in prison, this is all happening in chapter five, by the way. I'm, I'm wor- giving you the overview. While they were in prison, it says that the angel of the Lord came to them. It might have even been Jesus Christ himself. He came to them. He opened the doors of the prison, allowed them to escape, and he told them this. He said, I want you to go back to the temple and I want you to preach the words of life. I want you to preach the gospel uh, to the people there in the temple. God was trying to accomplish something. And so he released these guys from prison and they went to the temple. And it tells us that early in the morning, they went there and they began to preach and teach Jesus Christ. Well, remember the Sadducees and the rulers had just put them in jail the night before. So that morning they come and they come to the Sanhedrin and they're all meeting there and they're like, all right, they talk about what they're gonna do. And they tell somebody, hey, go get those apostles and bring them in. So he goes to the prison and guess what? When he gets to the prison, there's nobody there. And he says, what happened guys? I don't know, they were here and now they're not here. We're not sure what happened. We'll go find them. They go and find them and they're in the temple preaching and teaching. The guy comes running back to the Sanhedrin. Imagine this, they're all waiting. Where are those guys? You know, the prison's not that far away. And, uh, and they come running in and they're like, hey, they're not in prison anymore. And in fact, they're not in prison. They're at the temple preaching and teaching Jesus Christ. And, uh, and so the high priest is like, I don't know. I don't know what went through their minds. Seriously, I don't know what they were thinking. But he's just on a mission. So he says, go and grab them. So they go to the temple and they get the apostles. And then they bring them back uh, into the court of the council. And he reminds them again, or he commands them again. He says, didn't I tell you not to preach and teach in this man's name? Notice, he wouldn't even say his name. He said, I told you don't preach and teach in his name. We pick it up in Acts chapter 5, verse 29. So the, the, the high priest says, I told you, do not preach and teach in his name. This is how they responded in verse 29. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Man, that's powerful. We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now, Peter was sort of the obvious leader of the group at this point. And so he tells them, we're going to obey God rather than you. And God had come to the prison and told us to go and preach. So we went and we preached the gospel. And not only that, high priest and all of you gathered here today, he says, but I want to remind you that you're the ones who, you, who killed him. You're the ones who put him on a tree. And then he goes and gives them the gospel, though. He says that, remember, he came and he died for the forgiveness of all people. And so he preached the gospel to those guys. But what I want you to notice here in the passage is that rather than being pricked in their hearts like they were earlier when they preached the gospel, now they were, it says that they were cut to the heart with rage and they decided now is the time to finish them. So Acts chapter five, verse 33 says, and when they heard that, they were cut to the heart. That's the idea of like, they were just angered so much anger over what, ha- what they had said and they took counsel to slay them. In the original languages, that means they took counsel to slay them, to kill them. I mean, they're, they're, they had it out for their lives. Look what happens next, and it's remarkable. I'm going to read for you what takes place in verse number 34 uh, down through uh, verse number 40. It says, and there stood up one in the council of Pharisee. Now, remember, the Sadducees were the ones who were primarily in control of the persecution of the early church because it was a political thing for them, remember? So, but this one stood up who was a Pharisee named Gamaliel. Now, we've mentioned him once before, and we're going to see him again. But Gamaliel stands up there in the council. He was a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people, and commanded 
to put the apostles forth a little space. So he says, all right, let's put them out a little bit. We need to talk about this first. Because remember, they're like, let's kill them. I don't know if they said it like that. But they, you know, they had decided we're going to get these guys. Verse 35, this is Gamaliel. And said unto them, ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves that ye intend to do as touching these men. For before these days, and he's reminding them about a couple historic events. He says, before these days rode up uh, uh, Thutis, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves who was slain. And all as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. After this, rose up Judas of Galilee in the day of, uh, days of the taxing, and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men, and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught, come to nothing. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it. So this is of, it's, if it is of God, you can, you can do nothing about it. Let's happily be found even to fight against God. And to him they agreed. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now Gamaliel here, he steps in and he calms the situation. He was a prominent teacher. He was the grandson of Rabbi Hillel. That means nothing to us, but he was. That was actually a, a pretty big deal, part of a, a well-known family. He was the Apostle Paul's teacher that we find out later on, but he suggested to them that they simply leave them alone and wait to see if they're just going to fade away. And he implement, or implies that they will probably fade away just like these two other leaders that he spoke about. There were two other leaders who had influence. One had 400 people follow him. The other one had many, they believe up to 1,000 followers, followed this other guy, uh, Judas of Galilee. But eventually uh, they died or things just died out and nothing came of it. And so he says to them, if it's really just, you know, if it's not of God, he said, it's just going to go away. It's just going to fade away. But if it is God, what is the point <laughs> What is the point of fighting against it? Now, Gamaliel may have, have believed, we don't really know for sure if he truly did believe that Jesus was of God or that they were truly followers of, Jesus, of God himself. He certainly wasn't bold enough to say it here. We don't see him making a statement or taking a stand because they just decided, let's kill him. He wasn't going to throw himself in there with them. But he said enough to impact their decision to kill him. And so as sort of like, a, oh, man, I guess we're not going to kill him today. Let's beat him. <laughs> and so we see that's what happened. They beat all of the apostles. Now we see that. We're like, okay, like they smack him on the face. I mean, the, the Israelites had a very strong approach when it came to beatings <laughs> and it came to whipping people. They would beat them up to 39 times. Um, oftentimes across the chest and across the back at the same time. They would use, uh, farther on as Roman, Rome inf Rome's influence came in, we were familiar with maybe the cat of nine tails. Some of you might have heard about that. Uh, it, was a, it was a whip that had nine different points on it, and they would put pieces of glass or stone or, or metal shards in the end. And as they would whip people across it, it would wrap around their body, and they would pull it back and shred the skin from off of people. And so when it just lightly says they beat them and send them on their way, we need to understand this was not a scolding. This was, I mean, they were on the edge of death. The reason Jewish law said 40 stripes save one, which is 39, because they believed the 40th would kill a man. Obviously, they tested out that theory <laughs> to come to that specific thing. And so this was, this was a very serious thing. This was a, this was a flogging would be another term that they would use for this. This was not a, uh, just a little thing. But I want you to take special notice then of what happens next. Under that context, knowing that they were beat within an inch of their life, literally, look what happened in verse number 41. And they departed from the presence of the council. Say that next word with me. Rejoicing. Rejoicing. 
they had just reached the edge of what a human could endure as far as physical punishment, and yet they left there rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. These men went through something that would give every single one of us in this room pause to consider whether or not we would claim Christian anymore. (laughs) They went through some severe punishment, but yet the Holy Spirit encouraged them on the more (laughs) at that point. So much that this punishment that was intended to silence them enabled them, empowered them, gave them joy that they would be worthy enough to suffer for Jesus Christ. I mean, we could just stop right here and take the rest of the time and just ponder that idea. That they felt that it was an honor. They rejoiced that they were worthy enough to suffer persecution for Jesus. You know, I wonder, in your life and in my life, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we living in such a way that would even warrant persecution? (laughs) Are we willing to put ourselves out there that we would maybe go through some difficulty in order to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ? What a powerful thought. And what we see here is these men rejoicing because they went through this persecution, rejoicing that they were counted worthy. And, that inc- and because they persevered uh, through the persecution, What we see then is their obedience and evangelism continued then all the more. And they give us a wonderful testimony there in verse number 42 of what took place. Notice how it said, it says, And daily in the temple, in every house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. The pattern that we see here in these believers is that they were committed to daily Christian service. Came up with seven thoughts here that that we just see in just, just this little general area right here. They were daily in Christian service. They were a service in God's house. We notice that in the temple. They were also in service from house to house. There was an involvement from every member. It was continuous. They were teaching and preaching the word and they were exalting Jesus Christ. What a great pattern for us as a church to follow. This idea of continual service, of willing to put ourselves out there, willing to serve one another, willing to serve the Lord, uh, to uh, uh, teach and to preach the word of God. And I want you to see that this persecution, really, if you were to take it at face value, had no impact on the early church. Isn't that amazing? They had no impact on them more. In fact, it spurred them on (laughs) to even greater things to move forward with more joy and with more zeal at what God was doing among them. But as we noticed last week, the enemy of God is taking notice. And while he tried again, remember he tried at first to bring outward persecution, then he went inward. Then he tried outward persecution again. Well, guess what? Our enemy is about to try some more inward persecution. It's not going to be like we saw uh, with Ananias and Sapphira. This time he takes a more subtle approach as he tries to bring division among the people and among the church. And so what it reminds us of this morning is that we have a relentless enemy, point number one today. We see here that we have a relentless enemy. You understand the word relentless, not giving up, continuing over and over again. He tried outward persecution, didn't work. He tried inward persecution. They just went on stronger. So he's back to outward persecution. And now he's back to inward persecution again. He hadn't quite figured out that he can do both at the same time, which we'll see later on. So Acts chapter six and verse number one, we're now sort of taken back to the church. It says, in those days when the number of disciples was multiplied, There arose a 
murmuring. You can maybe underline that word there. A murmuring, that's a key word. A murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Remember, what Satan cannot destroy, he will try to divide. Last week we saw what he tried to conquer, he will try to corrupt. The same way he tried to destroy them by killing them, now he's trying to divide the church. And so when there was an organizational error within the church, a group of believers became upset. They began to murmur. The word murmur means a secret displeasure or a grumbling. And it happened between these two groups of people called the Grecians and the Hebrews. Now the Grecians, if you're unsure of who they were, the Grecians in the early church um, were Jews who spoke Greek. That makes sense, right? Jews who spoke Greek, they were not native to Israel, but they were people who were saved during the time of Pentecost, and they stuck around in Jerusalem. Remember, if you go back to the day of Pentecost when 3,000 people were saved, there was possibly 100 to 200,000 people, Jews, who did not live in Jerusalem, who came to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And so when they got saved, many of them decided to just stay in Jerusalem. But yet they didn't speak uh, Aramaic, which we're going to see in a moment. I'll just go ahead and I'll put that one up. That was the other group, the Hebrews. They lived there, but they spoke Aramaic was their primary language. Greek was the primary language of the Grecians. And so there were these two different groups that were all a part of the church. And, uh, and, and so they were, so Grecians were saved outside. Hebrews were local and spoke primarily Aramaic. And then this dispute arose between the Grecians and the Hebrews. The dispute was that the Grecians did not feel that their widows were receiving a fair uh, or equal portion of help, whether it's food or finances from the church. Remember, many people had sold their property and had given it to uh, the church to help, and one of the main issues was caring for the widows that were there. Now, widows were dependent upon the church to to survive. Now, you have to remember, this is 2,000 years ago culture. There was no welfare system in place. Uh, there was, uh, there were none of the things that we have today to care for people were in place. And so the widows were a people that were very dependent, especially those that spoke Greek who came from other places and had returned to Jerusalem, found the Lord and had decided to stay and basically live out their days in Jerusalem. They had no husband. They had no children. Uh, of course, in, in, uh, back in those days, widows needed help because property was always passed from father to son. Uh, so if the father, if a husband died, the property was not passed on to his wife. It was passed on to the son. Now the son had the responsibility to care for the mom. But if there was no son, you understand what I'm saying. There could have been a very difficult situation. And so the church, the temple originally as well, was given the responsibility to care uh, for the widows. Now this issue arose because the Grecians felt that their widows were not receiving the same amount of care as the Hebrews. Now, you have to understand, the way I look at this passage, I look at it, as a pastor, I look at it from an organizational viewpoint. Uh, You have to remember, they went from 120, 500 at the most, to now pushing 20,000 people in a matter of weeks. In a matter of weeks. And, uh, if you can imagine our church going from 70 to, uh, let's just say 5,000, <laughs> you know, by March 1st, 5,000 are trying to fit in this room. I think that you could understand there might be a few things that get missed. <laughs> Wouldn't you agree? 
It's like when you have your second child and you're like, you miss all sorts of things with the first. Like, oh, hey. And then you have your third and your fourth and, and, and you miss a lot of things. It takes a while to adapt and to adjust. And so that was what was going on in the church. They, they were missing out. And, and so um, the, the Jews or the, the Grecian believers, though, rightly or wrongly, they believed that because things were not met or needs were not met, that it was a discrimination against their widows. So they felt that, you know, this is a bigger issue here. There's actual discrimination against us. So tension developed and then it came to a head. Now, I just want to point out that often this is how Satan gains a stronghold into a local church. Where there are, poss- I, I'm not, I'm not going to deny that there could be a real issue, but oftentimes what comes up is that there is a perceived issue. Or a perceived situation that is important to you, maybe not as important to others. Uh, maybe a wrong that you see uh, happen or maybe a wrong that you feel. You ever have that in your life where I feel like something's wrong? <laughs> it may not be, but you feel like, ah, I feel like something's, something's up. And so then we take it upon ourselves to become the bearer of that offense. And we carry it with us. We may try to put it away for a while, but we carry it with us. And then we begin to view everything that is done in light of that offense. Come on, you guys understand this. You can nod up and down if you know what I'm talking about. We all have lived in this space where we, we, we have a perceived or an idea of something that is wrong. And, and while the Bible teaches us that we should stand up for injustice and we should defend those uh, that, are, that cannot defend themselves, we need to ensure and, and make sure in our heart that the justice are, that we are desiring is a righteous justice, not us just looking for problems. Because whenever there's a perceived idea like this, you have to remember, Satan is always trying to divide his church. He, no matter if we're a church of 70 or a church of 5,000, he's trying to divide us. He's trying to break us apart. He's trying to bring disunity and, and corruption and, and difficulty. And so that's why we must guide, uh, guard our hearts with all diligence, as Scripture tells us. We must uh, really seek and, and ask God, say, God, show me if there's, if there's a wicked way in me, if I'm viewing a situation or, or something in, in the wrong way. You know, Matthew chapter 7 teaches us so clearly how good we are at seeing problems in other people <laughs> than we are in our own, right? You know, we see, the, we see the moat in another person's eye. We're like, you have a speck in your eye, and there's like a telephone pole coming out of our head, you know. Uh, you have a problem. There's a great video. It has to do with men and women relationship, but the idea is it's not about the nail. Some of you have seen it. You look it up. Uh, uh, I could tie it into this message, but I don't know why I just said that. Let's keep going on. It makes, it makes sense. The idea of it's not about we're picking on other things and there's a big issue. There's this lady with a nail in her head. It's really great. You have to go and watch it. Um, uh, yeah, just type it, write it down somewhere. Go look it up later on on YouTube. It's not about the nail. Um, but Satan is trying to divide us. And so Satan's goal here is to divide the membership. He's trying to discourage the leadership. And so there's this, this issue that comes up uh, that, that I believe is not intentional in any way, shape, or form. I believe it's simply an organizational oversight. Or as we'll see in a moment, just the apostles could not handle that kind of growth that took place so quickly. And that brings us to our second, uh, uh, second point then. So there was a relentless enemy. He's trying to influence. Secondly, we see a reasonable request. A reasonable request. Look at verse number two. So they came to the Grecians, they came to the leadership, then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them, and they said, notice what they said, it is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now I believe this was a statement made out of them having a meeting already. I think they'd met together and talked about this. It's not reason, it's not reasonable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Verse 3, wherefore brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, 
full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Verse 4, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. I love, I love what happens here in this passage. This is so great. Because what we see is a problem being solved in the church, an attack from Satan uh, in the church family being solved by them putting the most important things first. Did you see that there in the passage? They solve the issue by going back to the basics. In other words, the situation that we're about to see was not solved by the apostles creating a new committee to study the recent spike in widow activity within the church. <laughs> the problem was not solved by, a, uh, by them commissioning a survey in the church to understand income levels and language barriers and the tension that those two things create within a local body of believers. No, the problem was solved by the apostles recognizing one of the greatest leadership lessons in life. This is a lesson that I have heard countless times in uh, uh, leadership books that I've read, leadership courses that I've taken, uh, podcasts that I've listened to. And this is what it is. When you're faced with an organizational issue, something that needs to be taken care of, a problem, you need to get back to the basics. And the basics is this. You need to do, from a leadership standpoint, so imagine yourself as one of the apostles. In order to solve issues, you need to get back to what you're used, or that you are called to do, which is do what you can do and find help for the rest. Maybe you've heard it this way. You need to do what only you can do and delegate the rest. Have you ever heard that before? This is a great, this is a great lesson for us. When you're in, in organizational issues and you're struggling sometimes to meet all of the needs that are out there, you need to get back to basics. And so the apostles come and they say, listen, for us, we need to get back to prayer and reading and preaching and teaching the word. And you're like, wait a second, that has nothing to do with the problem. <laughs> The widows are not getting enough food on the Grecian side. And they're like, it's not for us to serve tables. We need to preach and pray. Well, that's, how is that a solution? Well, the solution is they're going back to what they were supposed to do, which opens the door for others to step in and do what they can do. You see that there? It's, it's really, really interesting. The apostles are not saying they're above serving tables. Now, the, the, the term serving tables is interesting. It means literally serving food. It also has a tie-in with financial management. So they're not, saying, they're, they're not saying that this is not important, but what they're reminding the people of is that the primary focus of the church leaders is devoting themselves to prayer and study and preaching the word of God. That was to be their primary focus. And so for them to be out running all over town, trying to find where all the widows were, and making sure that everybody was getting enough food was not fulfilling their God-given and called purpose. And ultimately, here's what I want you to see. Them trying to do that ended up in problems. Did you notice that? Them trying to take care of now thousands of people without any help at all resulted in this problem. This, whether it was perceived or in reality, I believe it was real and perceived. <laughs> I think it was bigger, perceived bigger than it was, mountain out of molehills, molehill, you understand that phrase. But it still was an issue. And so they stepped back and what they said is that serving for them, and, and again, don't misunderstand the apostles, okay? They're not saying that serving others is a menial task because every part of the body, every ministry within a church is important, but it all comes down to a matter of priorities. Priorities. The apostles were doing things, they were serving others, which is good, but they were doing things that other people could do just as well. But not everybody could do what the apostles were doing. I mean, the apostles were doing signs and wonders through the power of the Holy Spirit. The apostles were. Not everybody else was doing that. Do you, do you see what I'm trying to get at? I think you're trying to see what I'm, what I'm trying to get at. 
And so the apostles here, with the wisdom of God, ask the church, they say, okay, here's the thing. We're obviously not able to keep up with the demand that is out there, with the growth of the church. We cannot keep up with the demand that is out there for the people. And so what we need to do is we need to get some other people involved in serving in the way that they can. And so he goes to the church, they go to the church and they say, we want you to recommend to us seven men of good character. Seven men of good character. Look there in the verse. Look ye out among you, seven men of honest report. We'll talk through the qualifications here in a moment. And the point of this was to give the church leaders, to give uh, the apostles help so that they could then focus back on what they needed to focus on, which was the spiritual uh, giftedness, the spiritual service to the church. And so they gave them some requirements to look for. Now, right away, I know sometimes we look at this passage and we think, oh, okay, well, this is the first instance of deacons, the spiritual or the, the, the office of deacon. This is the first time that we see it here in Scripture. And I want you to notice that the word deacon does not appear in this at all. Now, there's two words that are used, ministration and serve. That is uh, diakonos or diakonai, which is the Greek word that we later on see translated as deacon. We see that later on in Scripture. Um, but the point here is that they were looking for men who were willing to be servants. That's actually what the word means, servants, people who would serve. I also want us to note that in these qualifications that they gave, they did not include education. I need men with a four-year degree, at least in their master's studies, if not a master's degree. <laughs> it must be in socio economics. Is that a thing? You know, I don't know. It needs to be in economics. It needs to make sure they also must have at least $500,000 in investments that are doing well. And uh, they need to prove to us that they know what they're doing with their money. And we need to make sure that uh, they are also need to have at least five friends. They need to be popular people. And uh, <laughs> you're like, that's pretty low, five friends. <laughs> Some of us would kill for five friends. We would love that, you know. Uh, 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 what I'm saying is they didn't look for education or popularity or financial gain or nothing because you and I know that a successful man may not be a spiritual man, right? Uh, we also know that a spiritual man may not be a sensible man, <laughs> right? Okay. Uh, and while a man that is successful in his personal business or a business that he owns, he might qualify just because somebody is wealthy does not mean that they're spiritual. Or just because they can run a business does not mean that they can minister and serve in this way. And so the criteria is outside of those realms completely. Because this was important work. And God put a huge emphasis on widows. This was a big deal to God. This is important work. And so the men that would be involved needed certain qualifications. I'm just going to run through them real quick. They were believers. They were believers. You could even say they were members of the church. He says, look you out among you. They didn't say, go out and find somebody, you know, go find some CEO of some company. They said, no, you need to find, this is not a board of advisors. This is somebody within the church. It's somebody who loves and cares for the church. They also needed to be men. The word there used is andros, which is specifically male. This is not discriminative, okay? Please, please do not misunderstand the word of God. But the Bible is very clear that God desires for men to be in leadership positions. Very clear about that. It's not discriminatory. It is simply God created us differently. If you've ever met a man or a woman, you know they're different. <laughs> and in the same way, God created men and women with different roles of service within the church. And so this is one of those areas that God says, this is for a man. If you struggle with that, you can go to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and look at the qualifications for deacon as well that very clearly say there'd be a husband of one wife. That's very difficult to do unless you're a man, okay? So there to be men, but there are not, not only to be just men, there to be of honest report. Now this is very, very key here, very key. 
Because they had to be men who would have the respect of others because of their personal integrity and character. They had to be willing to serve. They were not to be desirous or anxious or pushing to be in this kind of position. Does that make sense? They were to be uh, uh, nominated or called out because of their integrity and their character. As well, they were to be full of the Holy Ghost. That goes beyond just being saved, but someone who is surrendered to the Spirit of God and is sensitive to the leading of God. That's, that right there is very key. Not only sensitive to the Spirit, but then responsive to what the Holy Spirit leads us to. It does not mean that these were perfect men or that they would never struggle, but it's the idea of having a heart towards God attitude that would be evident in their lives, not just when they're at church. Man, I've lived, I've lived a long time as a Christian. I've been saved for over 30 years. <laughs> I was saved as just a little boy, and I grew up in church. And I've met and I've known many people who I perceived were spiritual people because I knew them in church as spiritual people. They could pray really nice. They prayed in King James English, <laughs> you know. Uh, I mean, they, it was like, wow, this is amazing, you know, amazing prayer. Great job praying, you know. And they did these amazing things. But outside of church, they were not spiritual people because they didn't have a real relationship with God that, car- that, that carried them outside of what other people thought about them. And in their homes, they were a mess. In their marriages, they, they were unkind. I mean, it's all of, these, all of these issues. They need to be full of the Holy Ghost, but also they need to be full of wisdom. Not only must they get facts, but they must have discernment when evaluating those facts. This was necessary in these situations, especially with the widows, where they need to be sensible and to be logical and make wise decisions. And so these were the requirements for these servants of the Lord. And as the church, uh, as we'll see through the book of Acts, as the church develops organizationally, the office of deacon then is more established and clarified later on. And there's even more qualifications laid out as we see in 1 Timothy, like I already mentioned, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 18 through 13. But with all of this being said, we cannot lose sight of the initial purpose of this whole situation. What was the initial purpose? It was to alleviate the administrative work of the apostles so that they could focus on what they've been called to do and as well to meet the needs of the church. And so when this was done, I want you to notice the response of joy then. So there, we have a relentless enemy. He's trying to cause division. Wisely, they make a reasonable request to the church family. I believe led by the Spirit of God. And now we see a response of joy. I love this in verse number five. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. Isn't that great? We see here the beautiful uh, connection of, of the apostolic leadership and the congregation coming together in just a, a time of joy and just of, of, of being pleased with the decision. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. We're going to talk about him tomorrow, uh, next week. And Philip, and uh, Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Pumbaa. No, it's not, sorry. And, uh, and Parmenas, <laughs> and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Now, this is really cool. These names that are mentioned here, they're all Hellenistic names or Greek names. Isn't that interesting? Uh, there's even one Gentile name in there. Stephen and Philip that are mentioned first are two men that would go on to do incredible things for the Lord. You know the story of Stephen, he gave his life as as the first martyr in the church for the Lord. We'll cover that next week. Incredible testimony. Philip went on to be an evangelist. So I want you to see here is that these, these people that were called were men of great character. And initially all it was is that they were just willing to serve the widows. They were just willing to just serve in a real basic way. Okay, hey, Philip, can you take some food over there? 
yeah, no problem. I can take food over there. Stephen, can you, can you take this box <laughs> of money? Well, of course. <laughs> and I want you to distribute it to the widows. I want to make sure that they're cared for. I want you to go over here. And she, she fell and she hurt herself. And I want you to go make sure that she's taken care of. Sure. Peter, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. I'll serve. And then they began in that place of service. And, and for these two men in particular that we know about, man, they went on to amazing things for the Lord. They didn't start out doing amazing things for God. They didn't start out with this incredible impact. They started at the very bottom. And for us, that's the heart that we have to have, that heart of a servant. I'll do whatever. I'll do whatever. You know, not to have like, oh, you know, sure, I'll teach. Oh, you want me to preach on Sunday, Pastor? I'll do it. Can you come and help us, you know, hand out invitations or no? <laughs> I'll preach, though. If you want me to preach, I'll preach on Sunday. You know, that's, that's a struggle sometimes. And I've had that, I've had that said to me. I'll, I'll serve at this great level, but hey, could you come and help us on a clean day or a work day or painting? No, I can't do it. It's, it. Because it's not about the joy, or it's not about, it's, for them, it's all about the, the view. Higher things. But we've got to start right where these men started, just willing to serve. Verse number six says, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on him. This is so cool. The idea of laying the hands was, goes back to the, the sacrifice that would happen when people would bring a sacrifice. Leviticus 1.4 says that they were to put the hand upon the head of the sacrifice, the lamb, uh, signifying the sending out and that sacrifice that was taking place. And so when they put their hands on these men and they sent them out, they're signifying to those Jews who still very much understood that, pr- that principle. As they put their hands on them, they're saying, these, these men are willing to sacrifice they're willing to sacrifice for the church. So they laid their hands on them and, and they sent them out. It says they prayed and laid their hands on them. Verse 7, look what happens. And the word of God increased. <laughs> and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. Look at those words. Increased, multiplied, greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. This is incredible. Not only was the initial problem resolved, but the church was again unified, multiplied, and then the word of God was magnified uh, throughout Jerusalem. Satan's attempt here that was, was initially meant to discourage the leadership and deci- divide the membership had failed. The leadership was now more encouraged than ever because they had the time to devote to the spiritual side of the work and the members were more united than ever, happy that a potential problem had been solved and now there's all of these other people that are involved in serving and taking care of needs. And the result was that the church was multiplied and even the priests in the temple. Do you notice what it says there? That a great company of the priests. You say, well, what does that mean? We know for a fact that there was around 8,000 people, 8,000 priests that were involved in the temple ministry in Jerusalem at any time, 8,000. So when they say a great company of them, I would assume that's not an insignificant number. Maybe a thousand of them, maybe 500 of them. Can you imagine 500 of the priests coming to faith in Jesus Christ? I mean, come on, that's amazing (laughs) to see this happening and the word of God just going out and all of these things happening and God getting the glory in all of this. God getting the glory in all of this. So what can we learn from it as a church? I want to take a couple minutes of application here. What can we learn from this? Here's what I think we can learn. Number one, we can learn, uh, and you can raise down. I I don't have them on the screen or anything. We can learn that growth leads to problems. Growth leads to problems. And occasionally as a church grows and develops, especially if there's rapid growth, but I would say not even just rapid, just consistent growth, issues come up. So when the issues come up, what we can learn from this church is don't murmur about it. 
That's what I see. You're like, well, they murmured, so we should follow the early church <laughs> in obedience by having a little murmur session. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I think the apostles would have uh, probably would have said, I wish you'd brought this to me sooner. <laughs> I wish you'd told us about it sooner. We could have maybe gotten this taken care of. But when issues arise because of church growth or any issues, don't murmur about it. Bring it to the leadership and give them an opportunity to remedy it. Give them an opportunity to remedy it. I have never in my life had someone come to me with an issue within the church and I said, I don't want to hear this. <laughs> Not at all. I want to remedy any situations that may come up. As well, we can learn that a church needs people with the heart of a servant. That's what we can learn. The church needs people with the heart of a servant. Yes, we need deacons. And we are going to be talking about deacons and adding some deacons to our leadership in the next few months. That's going to be talked about, and we're going to move towards that. Up until this time, we haven't had any because we see in Scripture they didn't nominate anybody until there was need. And I feel like we're at a place where there is need for us as a church. There's need for me to have uh, some help with some of these things. You know, as a church plant, uh, I was able to handle from a capacity standpoint most everything. Man, when we started the church, those of you who are with us from the very beginning, you know that I did everything, everything. Granted, we had a great core team that helped with a lot of things, but a lot of the administrative, all of that was, I mean, I was doing all that stuff, and now I'm very thankful we have people who come in and help um, with many different things. But more than just some appointed men to a position, we need a church body that has a servant's heart, a church body that has integrity, that has the character, that has the spirit-filledness of a deacon, Someone who has the attitude of how can I serve? How can I assist the leadership? How can I help to enable the leadership to do what they are supposed to do? When it relates to me specifically, how can I help pastor in order to give him the time that he needs to preach and to pray and to prepare? Now, I realize that sometimes there's a misconception that when I come up here to preach that I just open my Bible and just go for it. No notes, no prep, man. That's what they do. And sometimes we feel that way. If you're gifted maybe in speaking, people are like, oh, I could just do that. No problem. I've had people say that to me. Man, pastors only work one day a week. Must be you're living the good life. Uh, you don't recognize that in this message alone, this message alone this week, I'm pushing 25 hours of study to talk for 35 minutes. Well, it's a little bit more than that. I'm pushing 20, I, I'm, I'm definitely at 25 hours, a little bit more. Guess what else I did this week? I had like 30-something hours of administrative stuff. That's okay. You know, it's part of what I'm doing right now and where we're at as a church. I'm not trying to get out of anything, just so you know. They misunderstand. But man, I sure wish I had a few more hours of prayer. I really do. I wish I, I, wish I had the liberty to, if God led me to pray for an hour to two hours, that I could just do it but I have the pressure of, I've got to get this done because there's other response. You, you understand what I'm saying? I'm just sharing with you. I'm not, I'm not complaining at all. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not complaining at all. But I, 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 sometimes as a pastor, I think to myself, how amazing would it be for me to look at my week and my, my calendar? I like to put these blocks of time, you know, was pray, study, right? <laughs> Walk with the Lord. Somebody once said that the preacher's number one job is to stay encouraged, <laughs> I like that statement, <laughs> but it's a personal thing to me. I need to be encouraged in the Lord, like David encouraged myself in the Lord because I know that the encouragement from the spirit and the joy can help me to lead in the best way that I'm called to do because God hasn't called all of you to preach. He's called me to do this, and so I want to fulfill that to the very best of my ability, but he's called all of us to be servants, 
And that's what we see here. There's needs. There's needs for us to step up and say, how can I help out? How can I make sure that those, are, uh, those that have specific things are freed up to be able to do their responsibilities in the best way? We all hate it when a work week is cut short, but we still have to put out the same amount of work. <laughs> you know, we're rushing and we're, oh, I got to get all these things done. I'm very thankful in our church that we have many people who have stepped out and taken over so many important aspects of the ministry. I'm, I'm thankful that I don't have to clean the downstairs anymore. <laughs> I'm thankful for that. You say, that's just a little thing. I'm thankful for that. Not because I don't like cleaning. I like, I actually do like running a vacuum. Jeanette will tell you that. It's kind of a, it's therapeutic for me. I don't know. It's therapeutic. But I'm thankful that others can do that. And others, and we've had multiple people cleaning uh, at the church. I think that's great. I'm thankful that I don't have to manage uh, the church finances at all. We have people who step in and manage that. And, they, and you know what? They have so much better minds than I do. I would stare at, at government forums just like, I hope I'm doing the right thing. Thankfully, I was. I always got checked, um, you know, but th- when it comes to uh, setting up nonprofits and all, <laughs> all of these things, there's a lot that has been done and people have stepped in. But at the same time, if you were to come to me and say, hey, pastor, what's an area that you feel is not getting enough time? I could give you a whole list of things that I wish that I could do a better job in. There's a whole lot of things I wish I could, I could spend more time doing caring for the church family but because of time I just I can't do it because of other things that are there I really think that maybe God is calling some of you to step up and to be willing to be used of God in a way that would help the church move forward this is again this is not about me please don't misunderstand this is what scripture gives to us that the solution to problems the solution to challenges in the future is always to get back to the most important things and then work out from there The thing is is that a church is only as sustainable as its ability to navigate change and challenges. And while Satan is always at work trying to divide us and discourage us, we see God get the victory through the uniting and strengthening and serving of the local church body. And so for me, as I look to the the, the, the future for us at City Baptist, more than ever, as we are transitioning, we're in a transition right now, church. We are transitioning from a church plant that was sort of like the Wild West. <laughs> just, we're, we're just going to do this thing and see what happens. To now transitioning into a, a place where God has established us in many ways. We have established core of people and established membership and an established testimony in the community. And so we as a church have to be willing to adapt, to change in order for God to get the glory through us. It's not always going to be like it was the first five years. Things are going to be different, and we can't sit and say, man, I remember, I remember when that, man, I remember that, you know, I remember, man, ugh. that's not happening anymore, you know, or whatever it may be, you understand. There was a time where I could call every member of the church in like 15 minutes <laughs> and have a meaningful conversation, because <laughs> there was only a few of us. Uh, but as we grow, that just doesn't happen anymore. I'm being transparent with you today. And, and as that happens, as we move into more established Uh, uh, as an established work with a bigger vision for the future, Satan's going to try to come in. He's going to try to divide us. But God has the answer to that, and that is people who are just willing to serve. People who are willing to, if they perceive that something, hey, let's take this to leadership. Let's get this thing right. Let's make sure that, that needs are being taken care of. Let's make sure. Sometimes the answer is, you should be the one to take care of that need. <laughs> Sometimes that's the answer. Maybe you should, you see something and you should just take, the, take care of it without any applause Without me knowing about it, without anyone getting the glory for it, just I see that, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna do something about it. Because I love my church family. I love what God is doing here and I want to make a difference in people's lives. 
We can learn so much from this passage as these men were called out and the example that was given to us. And I hope that God is uh, maybe just speaking to you a little bit about your own heart right now. If, if there's anything that you get today, I just want you to leave this morning with a desire to serve other people, to have a servant's heart. Desire to have the kind of character that if we were to, all right, everybody bow your head, close your eyes, and write down on a piece of paper someone who you think would be a great servant to the church, have the desire that your character would be such a one that you would come to people's mind. I believe that these men were already serving. I really do believe that. I believe these men were already helping people. They were already involved. They just needed, as it says, that the people appointed them and then the apostles uh, assigned them, <laughs> put them in the right places and helped them to see where they were to go and make the biggest impact. But we want to give glory to God and that comes to our willing service of Him. We hope that today's message was a help and encouragement to you in your walk with God. To stay connected with us, give us a like on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at Vance City Baptist. Our prayer is that God will grow and bless you as you pursue His will for your life.